0: Amen. All right. Good evening. Buenos noches, as Hondo would say. How's everyone doing? Good. 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 Sorry, I got a little... Uh, I kind of felt like a, on a late night talk show for a second there. <laughs> don't <have> a drum. <laughs> oh, yeah. We got the capos, though. Someday, for cajones. <laughs> well, how many people here are familiar with a uh, little video game, indie game kind of niche uh, called Among Us. Anyone play that? Okay. Yep. Yep. Got a few Among Us fans. Uh, How many people, if I said red is always sus, understands what I mean? A few more. Okay. Okay. Uh, How many people here instead prefer something like the card game Mafia or Werewolf perhaps? A few more people. Okay. Who, who can tell me in a single sentence, what the point of these sort of games are. Among Us, Werewolf, Avalon. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Claire. And you and then you are, kill everybody. Exactly. It comes down to, if you're the good guys, don't die. And figure out who the bad guys are. And if you're the bad guys kill everyone else. That, that's basically what these sort of games come down to. Uh, and, and ideally, you're the good guy. And the whole point is to, to survive until the end by finding the imposter. And there's a, there's a lot of games like this. Like, uh, I didn't realize this until, you know, Wikipedia. I'm scrolling through it. And it, it turns out there's it's a classification of games called uh, social deduction games. And they all operate using this generic formula. Good guys, figure out who the bad guys are, try not to die. Bad guys, kill everyone else. And the thing that makes them fun, or maybe frustrating, depending on your personality, is that uh, the whole time, the bad guys get to use deceit and half-truths to get you to believe that they're actually good guys. And I tell you, one of the most fun things in the world for these games are, when you're the bad guy... And you sit back and say nothing that last round. And you have a good guy defending to the death that you are unequivocally one of the good guys. And then they toss the bad guy out of the airlock. They say he's a werewolf, whatever the point is of that game is. And you get to smile knowing that the good guys just lost their only chance of survival. But what about when this happens in real life? What do we do when non-biblical teachings are brought into a healthy church, and individuals use clever persuasions to get you to reject God's authority? How, as a body of believers, are we supposed to know who's telling the truth and who are the imposters? Well, today we're starting a study on the book of Jude, and over the next three weeks we're going to see this very issue addressed. We're going to see how an impossible an imposter could possibly cause troubles in a healthy church. Because that's, that's something you don't expect in a healthy church. That's one of the defining characteristics of a healthy church. They're teaching good, solid, biblical truths. And yet somehow we get these imposters coming in and turning them into an unhealthy church. How can that happen? And when that does happen, how are we to respond to Christians who have joined alongside with the imposters to kick out the rest of the good guys? But well, we are going to be looking at the first seven verses of Jude, so go ahead and be turning there. Jude is another one of these single-page epistles, so uh, it's easier to find than Philemon. You just go all the way to the end of the Bible. If you hit your, accordances, your, your concordances, you've gone too far, turn back to Revelation, and then just go like one page to the left. That's where Jude is, right before Revelation. And as you turn there, let me give you just a minor outline for the book of Jude, just the whole thing in general. Jude, in general, can be broken into three sections. The first seven verses, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight, sets up the main point for Jude. This is why he's writing the letter. Who is he writing it to? And what examples does he have to give us that concerns his point? How do we know that his points are even valid? Then in verses 8 to 16, Jude is going to use these examples he gives us in the first section tonight to build up his case against the impostors. To say, because we have seen how God has responded to these things in the past, we know how God feels about them right now, and how he's going to continue feeling about them into the future. And finally, in verses 17 to 25, Jude is going to give us a closing call to action. To not follow in the footsteps of the imposters, but instead to hold fast to your faith. And not just hold fast to your faith, but to encourage those around you to do likewise. And the overarching theme of Jude is to be aware of the pretenders or the imposters. But as I was reading through this over the the past several weeks, uh, I, I realized that at the core of that theme of figuring out who is the imposters, to be aware of them, there is a single question that Jude has on his heart. And that question is, who is God to you? At the end of the day, who is God really to you? And that's the question we're going to be examining tonight as we go over these first seven verses. Uh, And then next week, we are going to look at uh, those who have the wrong answer to this question. And that third week, we're going to look at those who have the right answer to this question. Well, we all should be in Jude by now. So let's go ahead and read our passage for tonight. This is Jude verses 1 through 7. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you. Uh, uh, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So, if you're taking notes tonight, and as always, we do encourage you to do so. The title for this lesson is, Who is God to You? And the theme we're going to see worked out in these seven verses is that to be a Christian means we reject sin and wholly submit ourselves to God's will. To be a Christian means we reject sin and wholly, that is completely, submit ourselves to God's will. And we're going to see that this is, or was rather, an issue in Jude's day. This was an issue in Abraham's day. This was an issue in Adam's day. And goodness, it is an issue for us today as well. The outline for this section of Jude, these first seven verses, is the greetings. That's in verses 1 and 2. The second section is the reasons in verses 3 and 4. And the final section is going to be the call in verses 5 through 7. So let's go ahead and look at this first section of our passage. It is the greetings in verses one and two. And just as way of an introduction to the book, Jude was most likely written in the late sixties AD. Uh, It was probably one of the last five ish books of the Bible written. It depends on when Hebrews and 2 Peter was written, but in terms of what definitely came after Jude, it would have been the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and Revelation. So basically all of John's work would have come after Jude. So we're right up to the end of the time God was adding on to his scripture. This letter begins with the author stating who he is. He is Jude. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now there's two possibilities of who this Jude could be. Uh, and just understand that Jude is the English version of Judas. Uh, we we kind of made some words easier for or names easier for us to remember as we read them. One of them was Judas, uh, and so we call him Jude here. And there are, are two possibilities of who Jude could be. Uh, you might remember in Luke 6:14 through16, we see all 12 disciples listed out, and that there are two Judas is mentioned. There's Judas Iscariot. Betrayed Jesus, and there is Judas the son of James. So obviously, I can with one hundred percent confidence say that this was not written by Judas Iscariot, the one who pre- betrayed Jesus. Like that's that's a freebie, everyone. Uh, not that Judas. It probably also wasn't the other Judas mentioned. He, not the, the other twelve disciple, the the other Judas who was one of the twelve disciples. There we go. The son of James. And the reason we can confidently-ish have this understanding is because. Um, If you look down later on in the book of Jude, in verse 17, uh, we can see that uh, Jude appears to make a distinction between himself and the rest of the apostles. He says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not saying were spoken by us, the apostles. He's making a distinction between him and the rest of the apostles. I want you to remember that when this was written... They didn't have like 2,000 years of biblical study to know which books should have been canonized, which books belong in the Bible. What they had is some guy walked to their church and said, Here's a letter from someone. And you would ideally know who this person was, he'd be someone trustworthy. In the church, so you could, you could trust him to be faithfully delivering this letter. And then there'd also be an introduction where the person gives his credentials. He says, hey, I'm about to tell you some truths about God, and here's the reason why you can trust me as an authority figure. And because of that, it would be odd to identify himself as the brother of James after he would have already been introduced as the son of James. So remember, Jude written kind of toward the end of when all the books of the New Testament were written, and he would have already been identified in the epistles as the son of James. And so now for him to say, well, actually, I'm the brother of James, people have been like, wait, who who are we talking about? Like, I'm not following you. Uh, So that would have been a needlessly confusing thing to do. Instead, it's probable that this is the second Judas mentioned in the New Testament, and this is Judas, who was the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus, We see him mentioned in Matthew 13, 55 and Mark 6, 3. Mark's account says, in Mark 6, 1 through 3, it says, And Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to this man? And such miracles as performed by his hands. Is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, whose brother... And brother of James and Jossus and Judas and Simon and not, or are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. Now, let me ask you a question here. Kind of a, put on your thinking caps. If the point of the introduction is to say, hey, here is the reason you should trust the things I'm about to tell you. Why would Judas, the half-brother of Jesus, not introduce himself as Judas, the half-brother of Jesus? Why do you think? Like that'd be a pretty big. Oh, hey, maybe I should listen to this guy. He grew up with Jesus. He knows Jesus really well. What do you think? Maybe it seemed like he may have been make, might have been making it up. It might, yeah, maybe maybe he was worried that if he claimed that he was the half brother Jesus, he was making it up. What else? What else do you think? Any other thoughts? No. Go for it, Kate. Maybe he felt kind of to Jesus. Ooh, maybe he felt guilty comparing himself to Jesus. Uh, You know, that's kind of a speculation I have as well. Uh, So I I have something I'm really confident about, but I also have a speculation, which is kind of in the same vein that Kate just said, and that's I wonder if he felt guilty about the way he treated Jesus in life, the fact that he rejected Jesus during his time on earth. Uh, You may remember that in the Matthew account, uh, I think it was Matthew 13, no, the end of Matthew 12, where Jesus' brothers and sisters come, and they bring their mom along with them, and... You know, they, they say, hey, come on out, come out, come on out, come to us. And you find out that, you know, he says, well, who's, who's really my brothers and sisters? My brothers and sisters are those who keep my commandments. Uh, and and you, we kind of understand through the context of the passage that what's going on here is that his brothers and sisters were using Mary as bait. Uh, they wanted to drag Jesus away. They thought he was completely local. And they're like, we, we got to stop this. And so it's possible that, yes, he felt guilty from those sort of instances and uh, he just felt too ashamed by his past to give him such a high title as half brother of Jesus. But but that's just me speculating. Like it is something I wondered about too. What I am much more confident about is that Jude chose to identify himself as a bond servant because this is the core issue surrounding his letter today. Who remembers what I said is the core question Jude has for this letter? Remember that the overall theme of Jude is beware the imposters, but there's kind of a core question that goes along with that. What, what, what did I say it was? Is anyone paying attention? Yeah, Fox? Who do you think God is? Who do you think God is? Very close. It was, who is God to you? Sorry, Eva, I, I cut you off there. Yeah, who who is God to you? Jude is telling us through his introduction, that for every believer, the answer to this question must be a resounding declaration that God is my master, for I am his doulos. That's the word here, right? Right here, right? On our shirts that we wear up here every week. We are his doulos. We are his slave. Now, we've changed that in the NSAB to say bond servant because slave is a charged word in America. But the actual word used here in the Bible is that we are God's slave. And then Jude doubles down on this idea of God having complete ownership over us when he states who this letter is to. I want you to look at the second half of verse one. He writes, To those who are cold, beloved in God, or excuse me, to those who are cold, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude is identifying the recipients of this letter by describing them in three ways. It's not that we are called beloved of God. That's that's not what we are being called. It's that we are called, one. Two, we are beloved of God. And three, uh, we are kept for Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we went over in Ephesians, that God is sovereign over those he saves. Now, does that mean God sends people to hell? What do you all think? Anyone think yes? It's okay if you think yes. We'll talk about it. Anyone think no? Am I leading the witnesses? Yes, I am. The answer is no. God sends no one to hell. Remember, according to 2 Peter 3.9, it is God's desire that no one should go to hell. It says, "...the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." Furthermore, in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We rejected God's authority, and we turned to worshiping ourselves instead of the creator. God is not sending us to hell. This is such an important thing we understand when we understand God's sovereignty. God is not sending you to hell. You have chosen to reject God and you have chosen and said, I would rather go to hell than to have God as my master. We see this in Romans one thirty-two. It says about people who have rejected God, it says that although they know the righteous requirement of God that those who practice such things that is wickedness are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And maybe that's where you are tonight. You're still caught up in your worship of self. You're rejecting God, and as Romans 1.18 says, you are suppressing the knowledge of the truth, telling yourself, even as I'm calling you out on it, I'm not suppressing anything. I don't believe God exists. Or perhaps you do recognize that God exists and he has authority over all creation, but you say, you know what? That's great. I don't care. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to pursue my own self-worship, pursuing the hollow pleasures of this world. And if that's you here tonight, Jude has a wonderful message for you in this opening. You are being called to glorious repentance. This letter is specifically written to those who are called by God to repentance. That is, it's written to Christians. Let's let's not beat around the bush here. This is a letter for Christians. But in saying that God has called us, it is proclaiming the wonderful truth that God calls sinners to himself. And why does he do this? He does it because you are beloved by him. John 3, 16 and 17 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God loves you. God is calling you. And for those who respond to this call, the end of Jude verse 1 tells us the beautiful promise that God himself keeps you for Jesus Christ. Look, if you're still trapped in your sin and you're indulging in this meaningless self-worship, I pray that you're going to repent of your sins tonight. That you will turn to Christ and make him your master and your Lord, the sovereign king over every aspect of your life. I know I'm, I'm kind of belaboring this opening a little bit. It's like, okay, Matt, uh, you said there's seven verses, and you're at 1B right now. Well, there's a, re- there's a reason for this, guys. Uh, this single opening statement contains the entire message of Jude we're going to go over for the next three weeks coming tonight. And in it are some of the most contentiously mocked theological truths of our age. Like, if you ever want to start an argument, I don't know why you would, but if you ever want to start an argument, say you're in like a Facebook group online that's like a Christian blueies meme, just as a random example, go into that group and say unequivocally that God predestines you, that God has called sinners from before the beginning of the world, and you will be mocked. In fact, what they'll do is they will quote the Bible to you, and they'll say, oh yeah, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Yes! That is absolutely true, and you sit here mocking God through your own mouth. These are some of the most hotly contested truths of Scripture today because people have answered the question of who God is incorrectly in their lives. People will come out in mass to mock you. Their answer to this question Is not that he is their Lord and Master, but that he is their ATM. He's there to make sure that their physical needs are met, that they're healthy. He's there to make sure that their materialistic needs are met, so that they can be happy. But he is never in a million years there to make sure that they are obedient to him. Well, as we move on to verses 3 and 4, we're going to see that this is exactly the issue Jude is dealing with. And this is the second part of our outline. This is the reason, the reason he wrote this letter. Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. One of the things I love about these epistles is just we get to see these men pouring out their hearts to the church. We get to see their deep love for the church. And one of the things Jude is writing about right now is that he wanted to write a letter that was just like, guys, we share this common faith. Let us rejoice together in it. And I, I feel like we miss out a little bit on this today. Like, like think about this. In the past, you'd read Puritan writers and, or, or just like random people, and they'd write these things called letters to one another. And they would talk about deep theological truths. But today, we don't do that. Like, we, it's not just that we don't like write letters anymore. Like, I used to write long emails. We don't even do that anymore. We, we write tweets or, or Xs or, or TikToks or I don't know. Today's my 39th birthday. I got no idea what you kids do anymore. Okay? I, I am officially um, old. But the point is, people used to take the time to write these long letters. And they'd say, hey, man, this is what I'm reading and they would praise God in these letters for their shared salvation. And Jude desired to do this. He wanted to share with them the joy of his salvation and get to hear in response how they too were filled with this common joy. But he couldn't do that because there was a large issue growing in the church. And the Holy Spirit moved him to instead exhort them to contend earnestly. That is, to contend with sincerity an intensity for the faith. And this idea of contending earnestly it's the same thing that, that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:12, when he says, "Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses."." <clears throat> this idea of contending for the faith is the idea of, or excuse me, contending for the faith. It's this idea of an athlete who they go out to the race and they run, and they run with every ounce of endurance. And when they get to the end of what they're able to do, instead of quitting, they dig deep. And they find that willpower just to push a little bit further and make it go a little bit harder. It's the same idea that we are contending with our faith. And this is important because how many of y'all like, do athletic stuff? And I'm going to cast a wide net with this. Uh, Volleyball, swimming, biking, running, soccer, like, I I don't know, cross country, power walking. I will cast this net wide, okay? Uh, Most of us do some sort of athletic something. Now, how many of you guys who do something athletic show up on the day of the event you're going to do a race. You're going to do a turkey t- trot. I think you're crazy, but <laughs> I'm not one to talk. I do long bike rides. Uh, you show up on the day of the race having done nothing for a year. You're like, you haven't gone up. You've sat on the couch for a full year. Do you expect to do well at all in this event? No. No. You're not, you're really not even going to finish. I mean, let's be honest. You're, you're going to get out there. You're going to be out of shape. Your muscles have atrophied. Uh, the they deteriorated, and you're not going to do well at all. In the same way, we have to be devoted continually to building up our faith, the same way as any other muscle in our body. The same way that we would take months or even years to prepare for some sort of race or event, we have to be training our faith with a specific goal in mind. Our faith is not something that we are to passively possess as we live out our lives. We are to be actively engaged in training our faith up. And I want you also to notice how Jew describes this faith at the end of verse 3. Like, this isn't some warm kumbaya feeling. Like, I've known a lot of people who, unfortunately, have had the belief that God was an experience. That when you felt a certain way, that was the moment that you were communing with God. And what they found out is that they had substituted feelings for faith. And when they found out, they could, through meditation, have the exact same euphoric sense that they had done through feelings, they got rid of God from their lives. Because they didn't need him anymore, because that was never what they were following. Instead, our faith is something that is handed down to the saints, that is to believers, by God himself once and for all. That is to say, there are no future updates that need to be given. Like the message that we see here in Jude, at the very end of the Bible, right before we get to Revelation, is the exact same message that God gave to us in Genesis 3, verse 15. Where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offsprings and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That was the promise of Christ. One message of a coming Savior, one called a righteous living for all people for all time, that Christ perfectly fulfilled for us on the cross. Who is God to you? Jude has made his case for who God should be to you. God should be your undisputed master. Yes, a master who cherishes you and loves you as deeply as a father loves and cherishes his own son, but a master nonetheless. He is the one who calls you to salvation. He is the one who preserves your salvation. Because as we went over in Ephesians a couple months ago, I think, you can neither obtain your own salvation nor hold on to your own salvation. It is God and God alone who works it and accomplishes it through the substitutionary death of his son. On well, verse 4, we're going to come to the overarching reason, that is, the important issue that has caused Jude to change gears from wanting to write about our shared salvation and the joy we have in it to uh, instead exhorting us to contend for our faith with intense purpose. Jude says in verse 4, "...for certain persons have crept in unnoticed." those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it so important that we daily contend with intensity and purpose for the faith? It's because imposters have crept into the church. And the word for crept is a fun word. I'm not going to go Greek on you because I don't speak Greek. I barely speak English, y'all. But I trust people who do read Greek. And they explain this nicely. It's this idea of coming in through a side door. So you have the main door where everyone's supposed to come in. And it's like you see in the spy movie. He puts on a quick bow tie to look like he's part of the waiting staff. He catches the door before it shuts and slips in. And now he's a waiter. And it's the same idea. This guy has slipped into the party completely unnoticed. And he blends in with the crowd, so you believe that he's supposed to be there. Now, it would be easy to get rid of imposters if we turned to the door and, poof, a guy bursts in through the door, and in his greatest Shakespearean accent said, I am an impostor." But that's not what they do, right? Like, like you're never, ever going to get a false teacher to come in and proclaim himself for us all to see. Yes! I'm here to mislead you. I'm here to draw you away from the truth of God. Instead, they come in quietly. They come in unaware. They sit next to you day after day after day. They build up trust with you. And then they gently whisper. They say, hey, I've had this thought. Are we sure this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. Like, are we sure we got this right? And through these clever persuasions and gentle whispers, the false teachers, the impostors, trick believers into falling after their con- counterfeit of a gospel. And Jude goes on to say that these people who have been marked out for condemnation—that this happened long ago—they've been marked out. And the word "marked out" it just means they've been written about. Jude is saying that his warning. That impostors are coming to the, into church, this isn't something new. This is something they've heard about time and time and time before. We, we see it in, uh, in Paul. Paul wrote about it to Timothy. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.5, he says about these men that come in, but they are impostors. They said they hold to a form of godlessness, although they have denied its power. Excuse me. They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Now, earlier I mentioned that one of the questions Jude was going to answer is, how can we, as a body of believers, know who is telling us the truth and who is an imposter? Because they're not going to come in and make fools of themselves the way I did a minute ago. Okay? I wish. That'd be great to see for the record. Well, the the end of verse 4 gives us the answer. How can we know who's telling the truth? How can we know who's the imposter? An imposter, no matter how good of a teacher they are, or seem to be, I should say, no matter how many right things they say on the outside, they're eventually going to do two things. First of all, they will turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That's a fun word. Hard to say, but fun. It's an old-fashioned word. We don't really have it in, I was about to say in vogue right now, but that's pretty old-fashioned too. Um, (laughs) It's not really popular right now. But the word means outrageous conduct or wantonness. That is, it's acting without check or limitation. You have someone, you take away all filters from them, and they just do whatever comes to their mind. That's what this idea or this word is talking about. And we actually see this mindset of wanton living played out for us in Ecclesiastes 2.10, which says, "...all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them." I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. This was written by Solomon. It was describing a time of his life where he lived in complete wantonness. Everything he saw, he gave to himself. Beautiful woman, she's mine. Food, let's do this. That game looks pretty fun, I'm going to play it. Anything that caught his eyes, Solomon gave to himself. And he says, the pleasure he received from it was his reward. But it was only for a moment. If you look at the next verse, he goes on to say, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all this was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no prophet under the sun. He said, guys, listen up. Every last pursuit of the flesh, if it could bring you joy in this life, I did it, and it was empty in the end. It was like chasing after the wind. And the imposter who creeps into the church through the side door wants you to exchange the perfect joy that is found in obedience to God, for the hollow joys of pursuing your own pleasures in the moment. The second thing the imposter will eventually do is he's going to deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Master and Lord. These are not randomly chosen words. This is a declaration from Jude of who Christ is. If you look one page, to your right. Like, Literally, I I bet a lie. you don't even have to turn your page. Over in Revelation chapter 1, we see that Jesus himself on his throne is talking to John, and he describes himself. And what does he say? He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There are only two possible ways to answer the question of who God is to you. Either God is your Lord And your master, the sovereign king, who exercises full control over what is moral and immoral, having established the end from the beginning. Or God is the one who gets in your way of worshiping yourself. At the end of the day, that is the only two ways you can answer this question. There is no middle ground. Now, does that mean that you must be perfect in your Christian walk to be a Christian? No. Okay, look. Um, I wish we were. Paul himself spoke of this desire he had and this, this shame he felt when he wasn't perfect. He said, the very things I do not desire to do, that is what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of sin? Praise be to God that he can. So let's focus on that. Um, a lot of times, we have a message like this, super important, but you leave feeling defeated. Don't feel defeated, guys. You are called to holiness as God is holy, but you're not called or you're not expected to be perfect in this life. God understands that you will fail, and his love extends to you still. There's going to be days where you're not running your best. In fact, there's going to be days probably where you feel like you are on your A game. You are leading the pack, you are winning the race, and you're going to trip. And have you ever watched a race when the guy in the front trips leading the pack? What does he do? He takes down the rest of the pack with him. Okay? There's gonna be days where, as Christians, you're taking down the pack with you because you are failing to meet God's standard. But on those days, we are to remember that we are the called by God, we are the beloved of God. And despite our sin, we are those who are being kept by God for Jesus Christ. And because he is our Lord and Master, when we are confronted with our sin, we don't shrug it off. We don't say, God understands. It's okay. He knew I'd do this. No, that's not our response. Our response is to be like the author writes in Lamentations one eighteen. In Lamentations, he is describing how uh, Israel is coming up for judgment. That they've been confronted with God's discipline. And I love so much his response. In, one, in Lamentations 118, the author writes, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his command. When we sin, we are to recognize that God is the one in the right, and our punishment is what we deserve. But the imposter among us will teach you to reject God's authority. If you spent any time online, like on places like Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever. You probably heard someone use this phrase to justify a sinful lifestyle. They've said, God just wants me to be what? Who said that? Say it loud. I heard someone say, God wants me to be happy, exactly. God wants me to be happy. After all, God is what? Everyone knows this one somehow. Even unbelievers know this one. They love to throw it in your face. God is not just good, but he is love. Oh, yeah, they love that one. They say, oh, God is love. And if God is love and he loves me, therefore, he wants me to be happy. But this is the same lie that mankind has been believing since the Garden of Eden. When Satan wanted to trick Adam and Eve, he got them to doubt the goodness of God. He got them to believe that God was intentionally holding out on them, that there was something good for them that God didn't want them to have. And if they just rejected God's authority and grabbed hold of it themselves, they would have that good thing that God didn't want them to have. But God does not desire some ambiguous state of happiness for you. He desires us to find true, everlasting, satisfying happiness that can only be found through the proper worship of God. And how do we know this? How do we know that that's what God wants for us? Well, if you want a great expounded answer to this, go back and listen to our evangelism class. Hondo's been doing a great job on it. The very first one talks about who God is. But the short answer is found in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 23, which says, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. If all God desired was for us to be happy in life, there would have been no need for Christ to die on the cross. Christ did not die so that you can find, quote unquote, happiness in pursuing sin. It is not for our sake that God acts, but for the sake of his own holiness. And guys, when we pursue holiness, as God has defined holiness with intense purpose, the people around us are convicted and God's name is praised. That is what God desires for you. Well, let's quickly look at our final section in this passage. This is verses 5 to 7, and this is a call. And the reason we're going to go over this quickly is because we've, we've actually covered most of the points in it. Through the lesson already. Having laid out his case for how we should answer the question of who God is to you, Jude gives three supporting examples from the Old Testament to prove that it is not enough for us to merely recognize that God exists. But that as a Christian, we must fully submit to him, confessing him as master and Lord. In verse 5, he gives the example of the Israelites who refused to obey God to go into the promised land and then compounded their sin by refusing God to not go into the promised land. We all remember this? They finally get to the promised land. They send in the 12 spies. They get scared. They say, God has sent us here to be killed. Why, why aren't we back in Egypt where all they did was murder our children? Not that big of a deal. I was fine. And God says, because you don't trust me, you will now walk in the wilderness for 40 years. And the children that you are using as an excuse not to go into the land, they're going to be the ones to conquer it. And they go, whoops we messed up, we'll go in the land now. And God's not with them, and there's a massive slaughter. And then they go into the wilderness because they don't have a choice at this point. And every last person who didn't believe died in the wilderness. And this would have been an easy one to agree with. Sure, those people were punished by God because they didn't believe in God, but Jude's point isn't that They just didn't believe in God, and that's why they didn't get in. But rather that the proof of their lack of belief was their lack of obedience. If they had truly believed in God, they would have obeyed God. John 14, 15, and 23 states, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And again, this isn't me trying to say that unless you're a perfect Christian, you're out. Uh, that's not it. Nor this me trying to say that at the moment of your conversion, uh, you're hit by a magic wand and sin is no longer an issue for you to struggle with. That's not it either, guys. Neither one of those things are true. What is true is that if you claim to come to faith in God and then refuse to change a single thing in your life, you have no part in God. Make no mistake. You cannot come to God refusing to let go of your sin. If you have no obedience to God, then you have no love for God. In verse 6, Jude builds on this truth by using the example of the angels who joined Satan in his rebellion against God. Now you might remember, if, if you come on Sunday mornings, Dusty's been going over Hebrews. Hebrews. And one of the sections he went over is how Jesus is greater than the angels. He's kind of doing an order of importance here. Because the Jewish people at that time, they rightly recognized that the angels are in a position of, of higher, higher than we are. Right? I think this is an, an odd thing for anyone. Is there anyone who's never heard of this? Okay. Angels in the presence of God, um, higher than we are. That doesn't mean we worship them, but still. Uh, so Judas saying that if the angels who exist in a higher position than we do, if they were not spared God's punishment for rejecting his authority, then we who are lower than the angels, do you think we're going to be spared? No, of course not. Just the same way the angels were not spared, so too we will be punished for failing to submit to God. And finally... Jude gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah who were punished for embracing the very licentiousness that those imposters were trying to get the Christians to indulge in as well. God has not created intimacy as something for us to worship. This runs counter to everything you are being told today. Everywhere you look, Disney movies, books, uh, Harry Potter, even, like everyone is trying to get you to believe that sexuality and intimacy, intimacy is what you are to worship in your life. God says no. It is not for us to partake of outside of marriage. It is not for us to mix and match partners with whatever way we want to. It is not for us to create genders out of the depths of our imagination. God has created us, man and woman, and He did not mistakenly put you in the wrong body. He did not not mistakenly give you the wrong parents. He did not mistakenly get you in the wrong grade. You are exactly where God has placed you. And He has not intended for you to be intimate with someone of the same sex, nor for you to have as many partners as you possibly could. This is the licentiousness that Jude was talking about. God's intent was always one man, one woman in the bounds of marriage until death do you part. Anything other than that is to follow after the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, how can we apply this passage to our lives? Guys, the most important way we can do this is answering the question who is God to you? Who is God to you? If you are a Christian, By its very definition, you must, as a pattern of your life, reject sin and accept Christ as Master and Lord over your life. Anything less than that, and you're just playing make-believe. Okay? You're just an imposter. And you need to get yourself right before God by submitting yourself to him as a doulos, as a slave of Christ. Second, you need to be contending with your faith with intensity and purpose. You are all very young (laughs) compared to some people in this room. Many of you are just getting to that age where you're starting to think more about your walk in Christ as your walk in Christ. This isn't something that mommy and daddy takes you to every Sunday morning and drops you off in Sunday school and they go off to big church. This is your walk in Christ. And as you're getting to this age, it's time for you to start contending with your faith. And look, there's nothing wrong with being at this point. Like, like, this is what I just said. God intends for you to be the age you are right now. If God wanted you to be 39, he would have had you born in 1984, okay? <laughs> but he didn't. God wants you to be you. The age you are now, the place you are now, the person you are now. And he wants you to worship him. But like Jude... I want to encourage you to start personally contending for your faith. And that might mean waking up a little bit earlier so you can spend time in God's word, so you can spend time in prayer with him. Because if you're not building up those muscles, you're going to get to the race and you're not going to be able to run. And finally, really guys, I, I want you to really think about who God is to you. When I was 13, I first started helping out of my church church's nursery. That was 26 years ago. I watched a lot of kids grow up since then. And I've watched them leave the church. I watched them leave because they rejected God's authority. i watched them leave because they wanted or because they, they fell for the teachings of impostors. And I watched them leave so that they could pursue the lusts of the flesh. And it's hard to see, guys. I remember them all. And when I see them grow up and they reject God, it's like I'm watching them kill that little kid I used to know. Every last leader in here cares deeply and personally for y'all. We want good things for you. Not materialistic things. Like, look, I think it'd be great if the next person in here, like a billionaire, great, wonderful, but I would rather you be dirt poor and worshiping God than be wealthy and living in rebellion. Fortunately, I've also gotten to see a lot of kids grow up and love God. I've gotten to see their kids starting to grow up and come into the church. And that is a beautiful thing. And the difference between these two groups of people is how they answer the question of who God is to you. I would much rather you take the time this week to think about this question. And come to the conclusion that God is the one in your way. I would rather you come to me next week and say, Matthew, I thought about this. And you know what? I realize I don't love God. I realize that I see him as my enemy. Than for you to continue to sit here and be an imposter in the church. It is much, much better that you realize that you are not in Christ so that we can talk. So I can pray for you. So, you can ask me questions and say, you know what? I, I have been viewing this in this way. Tell me about this. What does the Bible say about that? That is better for you than to sit here week after week after week thinking that you're in Christ. And then you go to college and you come back and I don't know you anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that you care so deeply for us that you took the time to write down so that we could know you, so that we could know the truths about you, so that when impostors come into our church, we can, as a body of believers, recognize who they are, and we can hold fast to the truth, that we can see it when Christians are starting to fall for their false teachings, and we can come up to them and grab hold of them and bring them back to the truth of your scriptures. Lord, I pray that we as a body of believers would be in complete submission to you, that we would be your doulaces, your slaves, and that we would actively, passionately, and intensely be contending for our faith so that when the false teachers come in, when those imposters show up in our church, we can confront them in the love of Christ. Father, we do love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.